All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys. Yeah, you guys are excitable today. I like it. Um, my name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here. I oversee community groups and community, uh, family ministry, membership. Um, so those are kind of my normal gigs. Um, but I'm really, really, really excited to be up here today and open up a new series with you all. Um, we're going to go through the Lord's Prayer, as Johnny mentioned. We need to be a church that prays. And that sounds very obvious coming from a pastor on a Sunday morning. Um, but let me explain to you why I feel that burden intensely. And it's because there are a number of things about who we are as a church, where we are in history, where we are geographically, that make us just really bad at praying. Prayer, by its definition, is a cry out to God because you need him and you don't have any other options. Well, in Arlington and in a younger church like ours, we still think we have options. We still think that if we make a little more money, that will actually solve our problems. If we have the right job, that will solve our problems. If our kids would only learn this one thing, that will solve our problems. And so our abundance of knowledge and wealth and um, resources makes us really bad at praying. I know I am. I think that I can solve problems a different way and prayer actually becomes very impractical, especially when you're praying for something that's really good and you know from God's word that this is something he wants for you. And then it looks like you have it, and it just blows up right in your face. That happens all the time. And so our response to it is going to be something like, there's a better way. <laughs> there is a better way. That was a waste of time. It was ineffective, inefficient. And so I know that you guys wrestle with this. I know that... As you struggle to pray, as you feel guilty for not praying enough or praying in the wrong way, maybe, that in the context of your lives, as things happen, prayer starts to become not necessarily something that you go to. And so that's why we're doing this series, because as a church, um, this is kind of connected to us preparing to turn 10 years old and launching into another decade of ministry as a church, we are going to need to pray in order to survive. We won't make it. I firmly believe that. If we don't pray, and if we don't think we need to pray, we won't make it. And so as a church, we have to pray. And then individually, we have to grow into maturity in prayer because there are going to be more and more things that blow up in our faces that we think were stable for us whether that's your family, finances, job, all of those things, relationships, they're very combustible. And so as more time goes on, as we get older as a church, more of those things are going to start happening, and we have to be on our knees praying and crying out to God to help us. So we're going to do a series on the Lord's Prayer, which is Jesus teaching us how to pray. He's teaching his disciples how to pray in the first century, and he's doing this in a context of 
God's people really turning prayer into something else. So the Israelites were using prayer to do one thing, and then a Gentile understanding of how to pray that was kind of like prayer as how to rub the genie lamp the right way to get what you want. And so that's the context that the Lord's Prayer is written into. You have Jesus kind of rebuking the Pharisees who saw prayer as this like very self-referential, self-righteous activity they would do in front of others. They were like professional prayers. And so they, it sounded really good and was really kind of like using all the right religious, holy language. But then in their private lives, in their closets, there was no prayer. And then on the other hand, you have the Gentiles who are kind of coming from this pagan context where the gods required wooing. And so they would pray for a long time and kind of very repetitiously, and they would pray and pray and pray in order to get what they wanted from the gods. And so Jesus is correcting both of them, and now he gives us a pattern for how we should pray. And so in the structure of the Lord's Prayer, um, and it's in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, the structure of the Lord's Prayer is actually beautifully simple. There's a prologue, and so that is our Father in heaven. That's kind of the prologue. It's the address, who, who are we praying to? And then after the prologue, there are six basic requests that Jesus instructs us to make to God when we pray. So here's what the Lord's Prayer is not. It's not a formula. It's not like a magical incantation that if you repeat it enough times or just say these words, then your prayers will be heard by God. It's meant to open, us, open up categories for us. And there's six basic categories that it opens up to us. And then it instructs us on kind of the level of importance of those categories. Jesus very intentionally orders this in terms of like, here's what's most important, and then here's what's still important and attached, but only because it's connected to the rest of it. And so that is the Lord's Prayer. The series is just going to take one of the requests each week. And so it's going to be six weeks. Today we're going to do the prologue and the first request. And here's what I hope for us to um, explore as a church. I want to open up some of the baggage that we might have with the Lord's Prayer and unpack it and then kind of remove some of the clutter that clutters up what Jesus is actually talking about. And so when I say baggage, here's an example for me um, of baggage that I have with the Lord's Prayer. I went to a Roman Catholic middle school and high school. The Lord's Prayer was something we recited a lot. Mostly, like, at the beginning of football games or baseball games, we would, like, kneel down and recite it. That's what happened, because if you want to win, that's what you do. It didn't, it, did, it didn't work a lot for our football team. Um, and even in doing that, I realized something. The cadence and the words that we used kind of got just put onto my memory. And so I can't help but hear the Lord's Prayer in that cadence with those words. And that creates a little bit of baggage. It's formative. It's very formative. So for instance, how, one of the ways that this impacts um, today is that I bet, I, I learned this when I was kind of doing some studying on this, ser- on this series, hallowed be thy name, that's one of the requests. I didn't know that. 
I thought it was like the tagline to Our Father in Heaven. I thought it was just kind of like a throwaway, and so I just would blow right by it and not even consider what does this actually mean. And so I know some of you probably have baggage with this, um, and here's, here's what it's produced in me and probably in a lot of you. It's produced like a dry, rote, mechanical engagement in our prayer when we're actually praying this and in general because we think, oh, this is how Jesus wants us to pray. And then we very like, mechanically recite and woodenly recite this prayer. And so we think, oh, that's how Jesus wants us to pray. Well, we're going to learn today that that is not true. And so my hope is that we start to reform some of what we understand prayer to be, and then it actually changes how we pray, and it changes our hearts, our desires, our lives, our actions. And so we are going to learn today that in this first line of the Lord's Prayer, that God's children cry out for his holiness. God's children cry out for God's holiness. That's the most important thing that Jesus wants us to ask for when we come to him in prayer. And so I'm going to read this. Um, we've already read it once, but just read it again. And then um, I'll pray over, over our time. This is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9b. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, we need you. We need you here with us to, um, to open our hearts again, to make us sensitive again to your word and to your heart for us. God, we need, to, we need to repent of living lives that practically are atheistic. When we don't pray, when we don't cry out to you, we're not acknowledging you as God. And functionally, we're believing that we are the God. And so, Lord, I ask that you would, that you would convict us. And God, I ask that you would not convict us without hope, but that you would turn our eyes to your son who in his beautiful tenderness teaches his creatures how to talk to him. And so Lord, I ask that we would cherish this, that it would open up um, a new way of praying for us that really isn't new at all, but is ancient and is what you first intended. And God, I ask that that would happen in real time at this church for all of us, for me, um, and I ask that we would just be driven to pray. And Lord, we ask, we ask that you would be here with us. Help us to do that. And pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the ways to enter into this, just the whole structure of Jesus ordering, like here are the requests that are most important. A helpful question would be to, to ask yourself, is what is your greatest need? So if God is telling us, um, hey, I'm your creator, and I made you, and I want you to talk to me and ask me for things, here's what you should ask me for. Now, if you were, let's just pretend like you don't know the right answer right now, but in your heart, what do you want? What is your greatest need, functionally speaking? Let's be real. On a day-to-day -day basis, when it's Monday, 
and you're trying to get yourself to work, but you're paralyzed by anxiety because you're totally overwhelmed, what's your, what's your greatest need? Or if it's Wednesday and you've had just a terrible week of work already, and it's nine o'clock and you're just now getting off work and you know you have to be back in at 7 a.m. the next morning, what's your biggest need? What do you ask God for in those moments? Maybe you're like, God is so far detached from my need in that moment that I just need to go home and binge Netflix or I just need a drink. I just need escape. That's real. That's real. And yet, Jesus is giving us this request, hallowed be your name, to teach us that actually if we request this, all of those needs get consumed. And he actually meets our needs in real time where we're at. So in order to understand this, we have to unpack this, this, this statement of God's children crying out for God's holiness. Why is that something that's so important to do? Why would we do that? And so the first thing, in order to answer this, we're going to look at this text, and it's really simple. We're going to ask who. So who are we praying to and who are we in relation to who we're praying to? And then we're going to ask what. What do we pray for? What should we pray for? And then we're going to ask how. So how should we do that? And so in order to see this, the first place to start is with who. Who are we and who are we praying to? So in this first line, this introduction, the prologue, our Father in heaven. Let's slow down and just kind of dwell here for a minute. This will help us unpack some of the baggage, I promise you. Our Father in heaven. So the first thing that we that we learn about who we're praying to is the relationship that we have to this person is one of being a child relating as to a father. And this is not, um, this is actually not very novel. So that was a very common understanding of who God was with the Israelites all the way back to, if you guys remember in Exodus, when God takes the Israelites out of Egypt, he, he gives them his name. He gives Moses his name, and that's a claim to them as his children. He says, this is my firstborn son, referring to Israel. And so God giving his name to his people is a way that he shows his heart for them and how he relates to us. It's a covenant. It's a covenantal prayer. And all, all I mean by covenant is God promising and committing himself to people in order to make a family. It's a special promise and commitment from God to make a family, and it's his family. So when we're, when we're praying, we're praying to our father. But it's not like an earthly father, because it's our father in heaven. So if our father speaks about God's intimacy and his, his closeness with us, his relationship to us, that little prepositional phrase, in heaven, then talks about God's transcendence. The fact that he's not like us. He is both intimately near us and wonderfully beyond us. So this is a very special relationship 
for our Father to be in heaven is a confession that God is eternal. He is creator of all things. He sustains all things. He redeems all things. We can't see him. He exists in eternity. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere. And yet, he's our father. I hope you guys are feeling this tension. It's like, how can a being who is all those things draw near to us as father? And this is actually a tension that Jesus is very uniquely suited to address because in the person of Jesus, you see how those two kind of, how that tension resolves between God being transcendent and far beyond us and yet here with us, being imminent and intimate with us. Because Jesus is not just a man. He has a human nature. He truly is a man. But he is also God. He is that God who is in heaven. He exists eternally. And for the sake of relating to us and drawing us to him, took on a human nature. And in the one person of Jesus, you have imminence and you have transcendence. And so this is who's teaching us how to pray. So that's the first thing to understand is that we cannot approach God by ourselves. Just if it was just us and Jesus wasn't part of this equation, we can't go to God. We don't know anything about him. We don't know what to pray for, and he's certainly not going to listen to a bunch of rebels. And so it's only through the mediation and the filter of Jesus that we actually even can approach God in prayer. So this is a unique privilege for us as God's children that we have, is to go to him in prayer and speak to him as a child to his father. So that's the relationship. That's the who component. We are children, God is our Father, and he's in heaven. So what do we pray for? Well, God's children, if they're praying to God, what does Jesus want us to pray for? And it's this, the answer is in this first, this first request, hallowed be your name. So now we're really in trouble because we're dealing with the word hallowed. So go, with, go here with me for a second. Think about the English translation of the Bible and how we got this. We're using the ESV translation. It's a good translation. Put all of the smartest linguists and students of the original languages into a room and said, hey, you guys, we're going to pay you a lot of money. Take a lot of time, as much time as you need, and come up with a translation that is suitable for our modern day. So the whole point of this is to make it somewhat comprehensible for us um, who don't use old words anymore. And so the best that they could do is hollowed. Cool. When's the last time you guys used hollowed in a sentence? <laughs> Not Halloween, no. <laughs> hollowed. So our culture, what, here's what this tells us. Our culture is so far removed, and like holiness is so kind of like in the past that we didn't even really think it was necessary to come up with a verb form of holy. We don't have it. This is it, hollowed. And it's like, I don't know when they were using that, the 18th century probably, 19th century, 
a long time ago. And so we're going to do a little bit of work. I'm going to try and break this down. It's really hard for us to understand this because of our context. So this verb form of, of holy is about as useful to you as a $2 bill. You're not using it anymore. You don't see it. You don't think about it. And yet, we need it. I think secretly, this is something that our society longs for. We long for the sacred. We long for something to be set apart for special use. It's just typically we're putting ourselves into that position. We want our individual self-expression to set us apart for special use. So that's the connection point. But when we're talking about God's holiness, as Jesus is telling us to pray that his name would be hallowed, it's a very different kind of holiness. The holiness that Jesus is, ask, is telling us to ask for is the perfection of God's goodness, truth, and beauty coming to sinful creatures. So if you think of holiness like that, it's the perfection of goodness, truth, and beauty coming to sinful creatures. Hopefully that changes how we think of holiness. It's not, it's not something that um, is a helpful addition. It is our greatest need. <laughs> if God's holiness comes down to earth in full expression... There's no sin, there's no death, there's no pain. Because when God's holiness comes down like that, it consumes everything. It's a consuming fire. It is white hot. It cannot tolerate any imperfection. And so it is actually the perfect remedy for every ill of the world. And that's what Jesus is telling us to pray for. And specifically, he's, he's telling us to hallowed um, or to hallow the name of God. And so no, now we're back to covenant. We're back to covenant because God's name is an expression. It's a, it's a kind of representation of him. It's his very self. When he gives you your, his name, he's giving you himself. It's all of his attributes, his works, and his word and the praise that is due for all of those things. So here's a, here's a picture, and it's going to break down at some point, so don't think too hard about it, um, for, to help us understand what we're asking for when we're, when we're calling out to God, when we're crying out to him for his name to be hallowed, for his holiness. Think about the sun as God's holiness. So the sun is up there. It is what it is and it comes down and it goes where it goes, right? So the sun is the sun. You can't actually take away from the sun, you can't add to the sun, it just is. Now, for us to experience the sun, there needs to be no veil in between us and the sun. So imagine, imagine a really thick cloud of dust and water vapor and ash covering the sun. The sun is still the sun. But we're not receiving any of it. We're not receiving its benefits. 
That's exactly what has happened in this world. That our rebellion, humanity's sinfulness, corporately and then specifically, has contributed to this break, to this cloud that has been shrouded over God's holiness, that has created all of the social and physical and emotional ills that we face as a world. And so when we're asking for God's holiness to come down, we are actually punching holes in that cloud to allow his holiness to again soak and fill the earth. And now we're kind of getting the emotional sense of what we're being asked to do. How are we to pray? We're to cry out. If we want to take the Lord's Prayer and use it well, we have to understand this. This is the most, probably the most important thing through the whole series, is that this is not stale, it's not sterile, but this is a cry out. Our almost three-year-old daughter is very active, and she overuses her legs. And at night, she gets cramps, and she's in pain. So one of the great privileges of being a parent is that when she experiences that pain, she cries out for someone. And it's for Mama Dada. And it's a scream. <laughs> it's not, she's not sitting there thinking like, well, you know, I didn't pick up all my toys this morning, so I don't think that I can actually talk. No, she understands both the relationship that we have with her and her need. She's like, I don't care. I need mom and dad here now. That's the only thing I need. Because she understands that the presence of mom and dad fix problems. And so in the same kind of manner, God wants us to cry out to him. And he wants us to cry out for his presence because there's nothing else that can fix the problems that we need fixed. So in understanding this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push you guys to engage your minds a little bit, and then that'll help engage your hearts. So when Jesus was, was teaching his disciples how to pray in this way, when he says, hallowed be your name, we just kind of fly by that. And we're like, okay, that's kind of weird. Like, we don't talk like that anymore. Um, and that's right, we don't. But in his context, this would have been like a hyperlink into the history of Israel. And so I'm going to turn and read from Ezekiel 36. I'm going to read a little bit of this, and I want to preface this by saying there's some very kind of graphic language. Um, and so just know that this was speaking in a whole context that is set up. If you have questions, I can't, address, I can't get into it here because it would be a whole other sermon, but I'll talk to you about it if you're like, that's weird. So I'm going to read this, and you're going to hear the context that we're supposed to understand this in. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them, 
for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. That's the context of hallowing the name of God is that the people of God understood that they had totally trampled and besmirched God's name. The rest of the nations were like, oh yeah, you're God's people and yet you're in exile and he kicked you out of their land. What does that say about God? If I look at you and see your life, what does that say about God? If you talk to people who aren't believers, a lot of times one of the greatest problems they have with Christianity and God is the church. It's the fact that they say of the church, there's a bunch of hypocrites. They think they're better than me. I think those are pretty fair critiques. And so when Jesus is addressing the people, he's telling them, you are coming from a place of desperation. There's, there can be no pride, no arrogance, no entitlement that you can bring to me in prayer because you have defiled my name that I gave to you. And yet, he is going to vindicate his holiness through them. One theologian puts it like this, the petitions are a cry from the depths of distress. From a world enslaved by evil, death, and Satan, the disciples are to lift their eyes to the Father and cry out for the revelation of his glory, knowing in faith that he will grant it. So God vindicates his, the holiness of his name through Israel. And it's because Israel produced Jesus that that became true. Jesus is the yes and amen to that prophecy. So for us to now claim Christ and claim the name of Christ, we do the same thing that is being commanded of Israel here. We look back to Christ and pray through him. And as we're doing that, something is going to happen in us. That when we are praying because Jesus has mediated God's wrath that he was going to pour out on us. When we pray through him, 
we start to care about what he cares about, what God cares about. And so here's another reason why we don't pray. I know for me, it's the reason why I don't pray. And it's because I do a great job of insulating myself. So I might care a little bit, but as soon as it starts to cost me freedom, time, stress, energy, I'll just kind of like shut it off. The problem is, is that when you are being told to cry out, if you have nothing to cry out about, it's really hard to manufacture that. <laughs> and so maybe you're kind of in here and you're like, yeah, my, my, my life's pretty good. Like cry out, that seems dramatic. Why would I do that? It's because you don't care about what God cares about. You don't care about the brokenness of this world. You don't care about the brokenness of your own heart. You don't care that your neighbor is living as an enemy of God. You don't care that our entire country uses God as a political tool to get votes. It doesn't bother you. It's got to bother us. The more you pray, the more you push into what God cares about, the more you start caring like he cares. And when you care like God cares, you care deeply about all of that, such that the only way to live, the only way to function as a child of God is to cry out for his holiness. You cry out because there's nothing else. You cry out because there's nothing else. This wasn't an academic lesson for Jesus. This wasn't Jesus trying to prove a point or check people, but he actually lived this. Because if you understand what Jesus did by coming to the earth, taking on a human nature, living a perfect life, and then dying for people, for all of God's children, you know that when he is telling us to pray for God's holiness to come down, and he's deeply in tune with the brokenness of this world, the, the multitude of ways that we have horrifically jacked things up and perverted the entire world. When he's telling us to pray for that, he's bringing God's wrath on all of that stuff down on him. That's why he was tormented in the garden. Because he taught us to pray that prayer and then the very thing that he's telling us to pray ends up consuming him and destroying him as God pours out his holiness unvarnished on him on the cross. And it makes it a little more beautiful at the end of that, the very last thing that Jesus said after he has absorbed all of that wrath that is due us. He says, my father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus understood God as father eternally. And when he had the option of backing out and saying, you know what? I don't really know if I meant all of that. Jesus knew that the most important thing for this world, for his people and for the world as a whole, is his holiness coming down. And that's what he does. 
That's what he did and continues to do through us. And so here are, um, here are three practical ways for you, for you to pray. First, when you're praying, pray for God's name to be made holy in your own life, in your own heart, and do that with confidence. Because that is exactly the purchase that was made on the cross for you, is that that would happen in your life. And you're praying to your Father, who's all-powerful. So that's gonna happen. Secondly, pray for our church that we would, as a church, more move more and more to be a praying church and to be a church that cherishes and values God's holiness above all else. Here's the, here's the effect that would have. I think that we would freak out a lot less when things don't go how we want them to go. We might still be anxious. We might still be depressed. But it won't be a crisis of faith. Because we will confess, God, even in this, let your name be holy. And that's our win. We can rejoice then in the midst of our suffering when we actually value God's holiness the way Jesus does. And then finally, pray for, pray for this city and broadly speaking, kind of like your neighbor, that category. We need to pray that more holes will be punched in that cloud, in that veil, and that our city, our neighbors, our country would awake to the beautiful holiness of God and that they would come to Christ. Those are all prayers that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit love to answer. And your hearts are going to be transformed and you're probably going to need to cry out a little bit more. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a great blessing to be able to love like God loves and to be able to, um, to cry out like Jesus cries out. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Um, thank you for instructing us. And when you instruct us, you don't just use head knowledge that's academic and cold. You don't just use propositions, but you teach all of us. You teach our hearts and you transform them as you do so. And so Lord, as we enter into this new series, as we enter into this, um, this exciting season as a church, help us, the, the pastors and elders, help us pray like this. Help our entire church to pray like this. And help us to see our need for you and also that we do not prioritize anything above the beauty, the truth, and the goodness of your name. And that in all of our circumstances and situations, you would, you would help us to remember that that takes, um, that takes priority. And Lord, give us great joy and peace and rest knowing that um, you are perfectly holy and that we cannot add or subtract from that. But Lord, we long to experience it and be transformed by it more and more every day. So we ask that you would do all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.